Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's the opening line of probably the most famous of all the Christian hymns, which for much of the 239 years since it first appeared in a hymn book, it's been a hymn that has reminded, comforted and invited people who recognise their unworthiness. It's assured them of their welcome to God from God, the holy God. Today we're going to look at the grace of our holy God. God's grace means God treating us not as our sins deserve, but instead extending forgiveness and blessing. We're going to see God's grace in the life of the writer of the famous hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton. We're going to see it too in the life of the Apostle Paul and in our own lives as well. And for the structure of this sermon, I, I want to take up some of the verses of the hymn. So you'll recognise up on the screen, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Like the whole hymn, this first verse written by John Newton is really autobiographical. Let me share for you why... John Newton was himself a lost, blind wretch. He's born in July 1725. His father is a sea captain. When he's seven, John's godly, praying Christian mother dies. By age 11, he's a cabin boy for his father. And by age 15, he's apprenticed on another ship. By this time, his mother's faith is far far behind him in the rough and tough world of 18th century sea being a sailor. In his teen years, he comes across a really influential book. The author of this book says that God is kind and benevolent, yet he's distant, impersonal and uninterested in the affairs of the world. Uh, That's what they call... Deism. It's like the idea of God, of the world like a clock, and God is the clockmaker, and he makes the world, winds it up, and then walks away and never looks at it again. It's a long way from the Bible and the God we know of the Bible. This book, though, as it teaches this about God, also says that humans don't sin. That the wrong things that happen in our world are, are, due to our, are not due to our fundamental innate rebellion toward God, but they're just due to our frailty and our lack of education or our lack of opportunity to, to know good morals. And so, he, he says, each person must reason for themselves what his good is and what is his ill. With no God to answer to and no objective test on behaviour, John can do anything. He can establish his own code of morality. At this point, John considers that he's at last found the way to be happy in life. He could now live blindly to the Christian teaching on God and sin and salvation that he'd learnt from his mother. John is keen on this girl called Mary. Mary is the daughter 
of a, of a lady who cared for his mother in her dying days. He goes to visit Mary's family and in overstaying on a visit to her family and by deserting his ship on another occasion to go and visit her, he gets in heaps of trouble on, on the ship he should be on. He's following his passions as his moral code bid him to do. But he gets in heaps of trouble. The punishment for a deserter is to be whipped numerous times on your bare back. And that only helps to harden John toward his superiors. Now he manages to get off the warship and join the crew of of a merchant ship. At 20 years old, in 1745... John Newton begins his involvement in the slave trade. The ship's cargo as it leaves England is of lead and kettles and brass pans and iron ladles and basins and guns and gunpowder and knives. They use that when they get to the West African coast to buy slaves from the local traders. The slaves are then crammed into the hold and secured by chains and shackles and neck collars and leg irons and handcuffs for the journey to the West Indies or to America. That journey normally takes about seven weeks. Of this time, John Newton would write, I not only sinned... It's on the screen. I not only... Sorry. I not only sinned with a high hand myself but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. John uh, would uh, do things to encourage others to uh, blaspheme God or to to do the wrong thing. And so he was really clever with his words and he would outdo the crew in making up rude songs, sometimes songs that mocked Christianity or God. Often they're just bawdy songs. And on one voyage, he made up this really clever song that mocked the captain and the first mate. That song really caught on throughout the crew and they'd sing it when they were doing their work all day. And so you can imagine that didn't endear him to his superiors. On another occasion, he described himself like this. I know not that I have ever since met so daring a blasphemer, not content with common oaths and imprecations I daily invented new ones. You know, John was so bad that he one time got rebuked by the captain of his ship. Now, you can imagine that uh, sea captains are not the most pretty in their language. He must have been really out there in what he was like. One of the things that they did in those days uh, was that they would engage uh, in great cruelty towards the slaves. And so the female slaves were treated like prey. They were divided up between the the sailors with each woman only reserved till opportunity offers, John said. It was pretty awful. He was a pretty bad guy. The Apostle Paul was also a lost and blind wretch at one time. In our Bible reading from 1 Timothy there, you still got it open, 1 Timothy 1, at verse 13, page 1174. So Paul said this of himself, 
Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. We know what Paul is describing because in the book of Acts, we're told this. I put it up on the screen from when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is stoned. Saul was there. Saul and Paul are the same person. Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul, who after becoming a Christian begins to call himself Paul, rejects the Christian message that Jesus is the Christ and the Saviour that the Jews have been waiting for and that this identity of Christ was proven by his resurrection. Saul rejects all that and he's determined to persecute out of existence anyone who tries to promote or live by this message. Now, as we read about these bad men, John Newton, Saul, we can feel condemnation. But let's not be too quick to excuse ourselves. We live in middle-class comfort, we're educated, so we don't look as barbaric as these two. Yet the New Testament doesn't pull any punches about any of us. It says all of us sin and fall short of God's glory, be it through giving created or material things more attention than God or just ignoring his will in how we treat others or just conforming to our own comfortable standard of morality, whatever it is, we're all, in the words of Ephesians 2 up there on the screen, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And so as a result, like the rest... We were, we are, by nature, objects of God's wrath. John, Saul, and all of us are under God's wrath and we need God to treat us with grace. So, verse 2 of Amazing Grace, "'To his grace that taught my heart to fear "'and grace my fears relieved. "'How precious did that grace appear!' the hour I first believed. The life of a sailor in the 18th century had many challenges and things to fear. But one night in particular really made John Newton fear for his moral and spiritual welfare for the first time. It's March 1748. John is 22 The greyhound has finished work in Africa and is heading home. One night as the greyhound crosses the Atlantic, a a howling gale is there. There's gusts of 80 miles an hour that tore into the ships and toss her amongst the 30-foot waves from side to side. The boat's already weak since she left Africa. Spending two years up and down the coast of West Africa only means that your boat is going to have weak sails and ropes, thin ropes and the hull is going to be leaky and so the pounding waves are easily able to bash into the hull and the upper timbers are torn away and the canvas is ripped and the masts are splintered 
is a horrible night. There isn't much relief to be had when dawn comes, even though the wind slackens a little. The men are busy using bedding to plug different holes around the boat. From 3am that night, John Newton is lashed to one of the pumps, pumping water out of the hull. And he's at 9am, he finds himself uttering his first prayer since childhood as he looks about this poor excuse for a ship. If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. That shocked John Newton. He was shocked that he'd pray. What was he doing praying to a God that he'd rejected and didn't believe in? What had he to do with peace or or mercy? What right had he to call on God and expect a reply? Well, he kept on working. And all the time he, he's thinking. As I said, he, he's been lashed to the pump since 3am. He works uh, till midday. And then he gets an hour's rest. And then he, he's too weak to actually go back to the pump. So they lash him to the helm, like the steering wheel, until midnight. And being lashed in the one place, doing the same thing, you've got lots of time to think. And he begins to dread impending death he begins to think too that if the bible's true when he dies he can't expect any mercy he thought there could hardly be a greater sinner than himself when he considered his lifestyle and his speech how often he'd made the christian message the butt of his rude songs john was sure he'd passed the limit of god's forgiveness At about 6pm that evening, the ship became free of water and the crew began to have a little hope. And the ship continued on limping across the Atlantic toward England. And as it did, John found himself beginning to think of Christ. He wanted to be sure the message was true. And on the ship... He found the Bible, the ship's Bible. He found a New Testament. But he also found a little book of sermons by a Welsh bishop, Beveridge. And one of the sermons Newton read over and over. It was an Easter sermon. And it was all about, as you'd guess for an Easter sermon, Christ dying for our sins to take away the guilt and the punishment for sin. And these words of the bishop were really challenging to John on the screen. Let us search into our hearts, review our lives and bethink ourselves what sins we've committed against the eternal God. And remember, these were they which put our Saviour to so much grief and pain, into such an agony that he swept drops, great drops of blood. They'd lost almost all their food, Their sails were largely torn away. The journey home is painfully slow. They limp on like this for two and a half weeks. But that gives John some leisure time in between the jobs to actually read the Bible and pray. And finally, they arrive at Lost Willie, the northernmost point of Ireland. And John would later tell Mary this, my first half formed prayers were answered he whom the wind and seas obey in a manner little less than miraculous brought me in safety 
to Ireland. He's got a different attitude to God, hasn't he? And from that day, he never failed to mark March the 10th every year because, as he said, on that day, the Lord sent me from on high and delivered me out of deep waters, delivered him in more ways than one. The man who stepped ashore was very different to the one who'd left England three and a half three years and one month earlier. He was now laying claim to the pardon for sin Christ dying for sinners had gained. And John resolved to turn from his sin and live in service of God. At this point, he's 23. And that experience of God's grace has taught him to fear rather than mock God. But when was the hour he first believed? Was it that night in the ship? Or is it some time in the two weeks of limping along in the greyhound, reading that sermon again? Some time. It's a lot easier to state the hour at which the Apostle Paul first believed. Because we know it was when Jesus Christ appeared to him in a blinding vision when he's travelling to Damascus to arrest Christians. From that day on, Paul knew that Christ was the Messiah. And in a few days after that, God sent the Christian Ananias to heal Saul of his blindness because, as Ananias was told, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Saul came to realise that God was very generous to him. He, he was forgiven his past, his horrible past. I've actually seen the murder of, of Jesus' people. And in addition, as he said in verse 13 there, in 1 Timothy 13, he was appointed to serve the Lord. And so Paul would write later here in his letter to Timothy in verse 14, you have it in front of you, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul, you see it there in verse 16, he's an example to anyone that their sin is not so great that God's mercy cannot extend to them. That God's grace isn't grace enough, isn't great enough to come to them. As it says there at the end of verse 16, God's grace and salvation is available to anyone who believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. John Newton saw himself in Paul's words as well, I would have loved to hear the, the night he preached on this passage, which he did. If Paul, the murderous blasphemer, can be forgiven, if John, the promiscuous, cruel, mocking blasphemer, can be forgiven, anyone can. And so those words first written to the Christians in Ephesus, but true of Christians in general, come to mind with all their sweet, satisfying 
comfort. Let me throw them on the screen from chapter 2 of Ephesians. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not about your works. It's about God's grace. And he's offering that. He gives that to anyone who wants it. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. So praise God for his grace and favour. And if you aren't sure of his acceptance, then ask yourself whether Christ came into the world to die for sinners. Did he? Yes. Yes. So what? What's stopping you? If he's shown grace to John Newton and to Paul, why wouldn't he to you? No one is beyond the reach of God's grace if they'll turn and ask. The near shipwreck that John Newton experienced around the hour he first believed is just one of the reasons that life as a sailor in the 18th century was very dangerous. And these dangers are the subject of John Newton's third verse. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. His great grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Well, John returns to sea again after getting escaping with his life and a newfound faith in April of 1748. He's back to the sea in July, this time his first mate of the Brownlow. To the coast of West Africa again, they go in search of slaves. This trip, like all the others, has its dangers, toils and snares. The temperature in summertime is consistently above 38 degrees. It's a tropical area on the west coast of Africa, so there's lots of rain and storms. They get 150 inches of rain a year. To get the slaves, they're not just waiting for you on the seashore. You go inland and do the trading with, the, with people. And so they go inland, and when you journey inland, you spend five or six days, and you get rained on constantly, so you're constantly wet and saturated. And you have to pass through dense forest and mosquito-infested swamps as well. Plus, of course, not all the locals are going to be welcoming or peaceful. In addition to that, a number of times on his visits to Africa, Newton fell really ill with fever. On this particular voyage, when he falls ill with fever, he throws himself on the mercy of God. And God's grace again brings him through. When John gets back safely to England, he proposes to Mary, and they're married uh, during that year. They can only afford to live with her parents. By August, he's off to Africa again, this time as captain of the Duke of Argyle. Now he's captain, he's got even more dangerous toils and snares to face because, of course, you've got to watch out for mutinous crew members or crew members who'll steal things. He had that happen a number of times uh, on this voyage. 
Another is that sometimes there'll be plots amongst the slaves to violently break away. Ships' crews were known to be massacred in that way. On Newton's boat, on this voyage, two such plans were just discovered in time, just in time. And there was also the danger of pirates and also the deaths that happened due to the fever and and drownings because hardly any sailors in that time could swim. Newton certainly could never swim. Because of that, those losses due to fever, due to drownings and other accident, John lost key crew. He lost the, the ship's surgeon. He lost the ship's first mate. He lost the carpenter. So they're all things that were dangers, toils and snares. John would make two more voyages to Africa as captain of a slave trading ship. And his last one was in August 1754, or he completed it in August 1754. And that was the worst year John had ever seen for death on the West African coast. During May of that voyage, Newton himself contracted another bout of bad fever. For two weeks, it was so bad he couldn't even write his daily entry in his logbook, let alone do the three times weekly letter to Mary. You wonder about the letters, how they got there, don't you? What happened in those days, of course, is your ship might be here, but another ship was ready to go home and you'd give them to them and there must have been uh, some sort of uh, trust among the different ships that they'd take the mail for you. I suppose when you got mail from your loved one, you got ten letters at once or something like that. This third voice verse of amazing grace emphasises the need to rely on God's grace in the face of all the dangers, toils and snares. And that's the advice John urged on Mary just weeks before he sailed on that first voyage after their marriage. This is what he said. If my dearest Mary will permit me to offer my best advice and which I propose as a rule to myself, it is this to endeavour to cast all your care upon him who has promised to care for us if we will but put our trust in him. John was teaching Mary, was encouraging Mary to put their trust in God and his grace in the face of all the difficult things they might face. When Paul writes of God's grace to himself, he's also aware of the need to rely on God's continuing protection provision and help. There are many places in his writings where Paul expresses such reliance. But here in 1 Timothy again, at verse 12, we get a little inkling. Notice how Paul is thankful that the Lord Jesus has appointed him to serve, but also he has given me strength. Prayerfully looking to the the strength of the Lord as we live for him, as we live depending on his grace, in his grace. That's what the best of the Lord's servants do. And Paul tells the Ephesian Christians that he prays for them to personally know the incomparable power of the Lord for the believer. Oh, that we might be more prayerful before we were active and that we might avail ourselves of this power. God is gracious and willing to give. Are we willing to ask? Well, one of the ways the Lord definitely strengthens, equips and sustains us to walk in his service is through his word, the Bible. 
John Newton experienced that. He has the Bible in mind in his fourth verse. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Here in verse 4, John's thinking of the trustworthiness of God and his word in everyday life. As John takes on more and more of the Bible, he comes to a point where he dedicates his life to proclaiming that, that same word for the salvation of wretches and the strengthening of believers. But that wasn't what he thought was going to happen when we next pick up the story. John Newton is preparing for his fourth voyage as captain when he suddenly collapses and that changes everything. The doctors think it's some type of epilepsy and say he should never go to sea again. I reckon God was at work there because he never collapsed like that any other time in his life. But God had plans for him and they were on land and not at sea. He eventually gets a job as the tide surveyor at Liverpool Harbour. Now you people studying geography, you might think, it sounds like he's doing geography, measuring the tides and everything, but in fact it's a fancy name for a customs officer. Basically, he and his staff have to intercept boats and check that they're not smuggling, because smuggling goods was really big business in those days with you know, so many ships about. He got a good income for that, and he does that job for nine years. And it's during that time that he first attends church. He loves to go and hear preachers, and sometimes he'd travel to other places to hear popular evangelical gospel preachers like the famous George Whitfield. He befriends ministers from a number of different denominations. The, the gospel and biblical ministry were always more important than the sign over the door to Newton. He begins to see the importance of faithful Bible preaching for people to come to faith and for their Christian growth. And he even tries his hand at a bit of preaching. The first time he tries to preach, he only gets a little way in before he forgets everything and loses his confidence and sits down in, with embarrassment and the minister has to finish off the sermon for him. But he becomes more and more convinced at the encouragement of others over the coming years that he actually should take on vocational ministry on a full-time basis. He applies to be ordained in the Anglican Church, but he gets rejected because the bishop looks down on him because he hasn't been to university and he's friends with these Methodist people like John Wesley and Whitfield. John Wesley urges Newton to become an itinerant. He didn't do that, but he did consider accepting a call to go and lead an independent church. But then he decides against it. He's almost about to accept a call when a member of the House of Lords who's a Christian reads Newton's autobiography, which had been published in 1754, and writes a letter offering to John that he become and become the curate, the minister of a little church in a rural town called Olney. And with that Lord Dartmouth's letter of recommendation to the bishop, this time the bishop ordains him. He becomes a deacon like Dave in the Church of England in April 1764. Now John 
is at Olney for 15 and a half years. It's a really poor town, but to everyone, John's ministry is marked by his love and care and his sharing with them, his teaching them the word of God. He teaches not only in the church services, which grow and the building has to be extended, but also when he visits people, he visits people in the town, he visits people in the, far, in the far-reaching farms. He, vis- he teaches the Bible at the heavily attended Tuesday prayer meeting he established, at the special kids meeting he establishes, at the small groups he organises. Because John publishes his autobiography and other writings, he receives a lot of visitors and letters seeking his counsel. And so often he points people to the Bible and and God's word for their answer or their encouragement. It's an extensive and busy ministry he has and it becomes even busier when he moves to Woolnoth in London in 1780 and he'll be a minister there for 27 years until he dies. There's significant growth in that congregation too. One notable attender in that congregation is William Wilberforce. He gets converted to Christ through discussions on faith with John Newton. Newton will later write first-hand descriptions of the slave trade to help William Wilberforce the parliamentarian, to persuade Parliament to abolish the slave trade. Thousands of copies of Newton's thoughts on the African slave trade are circulated through England. But the vested interests in favour of the trade are very powerful. And so Wilberforce fails. But at Newton's encouragement, Wilberforce introduces the Bill for Abolition every year from 1788. And every year it's rejected until it's finally successful in 1807. One of the things Newton does to help the many illiterate people, particularly at Olney, to learn from the Bible is to compose hymns to accompany his sermon. I boggle at this. I have enough trouble getting a sermon out, let alone an accompanying hymn. And this is where Amazing Grace originally comes about. Interestingly, they wouldn't have sung it to the traditional tune we know now. That tune only first appears in an American hymn book about 50 years after Amazing Grace is first published in this hymn book called The Olney Hymns. It's 1779. The Olney Hymns contain 280 hymns written by John Newton and another 68 by his friend and congregation member, William Cowper. Another little interesting trivia about music and stuff in the time. John Newton and William Cowper, leading guys in pushing hymns in the time, were opposed to the use of the organ in church worship. It doesn't mean they used the guitar. They didn't use anything. It's another world. Isn't that just blow your mind? Originally, Amazing Grace has six verses. The four we've looked at today and two more, neither of which are the popular last one you've probably heard when we've been there 1,000 years bright shining as the sun with no more day, no more less reason to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 
that 10,000 years verse appears for the first time attached to the end of the hymn in 1829 in America. No one knows who wrote it. It certainly wasn't John Newton. The original last verse goes like this, and this blew my mind when I saw it because I thought Chris Tomlin made it up. (laughs) The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. The promises of salvation secured to John Newton by the Lord's word were a comfort to him as his life endured and declined. In the month that he died, Newton confided this to a friend. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. I want to finish tonight by reading to you part of the epitaph that John Newton composed for himself. And you can really see the influence of Paul's little bit to Timothy in this, I reckon. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. Amazing grace.